Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years War Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon The Crimean War To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered this well this history friends is when diplomacy fails remastered and you're about to listen to the first collaboration episode of this extravaganza of ours so if you've no idea what that means it basically means it's sort of a free-flowing conversational roughly planned out roughly sketched throwing caution to the wind talk episode kind of thing except with a podcaster about a certain topic that they hopefully know a good bit about Maybe not as much as Sean, but we can't all be infallible. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Today on the podcast, collaboration, we have Travis J. Dow. We're very happy to have him because Travis is one of those guys that seems to just breathe or sneeze or exist in general. And a podcast appears, a wild podcast appears. I ask him to list off his extensive numbers of podcasts at the beginning Travis is very fortunate to also be fluent in German, so because of that, he's dipped into the German podcast world. And let's just say it's a bit crazy in its own way. But he's kept very, very busy, as I'm sure you can imagine, what with history of Germany, history of alchemy, Bohemian, the secret cabinet, which he's translated from German, by the way. He's a machine. I thought I was bad. But if I have no life and I'm doing this, he must have minus one life, or minus ten lives, or minus nine lives. Whatever it is, he's mad. And he deserves to be listened to. So that's why he's on the podcast. He's also a good friend of the podcast and a fellow Agora peer or MP or 
maybe not in the House of Lords, but he's a fellow Agora member. So it's nice to have people like them on because community and encouragement and all that jazz. So yeah, I hope you'll enjoy this first collaboration episode. And I hope you'll remember that all of this has been brought to you because, well, we're five years old, guys. And I felt it was time to give you a gift to signify all the fun times we've had together. So I really hope you're enjoying what we're giving you so far. I mean, we're only just into it, really. This is the first one. You've just heard remastered Franco-Prussian, hopefully. And hopefully you think it's better than the original. But either way, here we are. And we won't be stopping just with this. We'll be keeping on going, keeping on trucking. You won't be able to believe your eyes with the amount of stuff coming towards you. But yeah, let me know what you think of this. It's the first one, so either way you're going to get more because the schedule's set up that way. But still... Do let me know, and let Travis know as well. Check him out at podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. He's a good guy, and I'm sure you'll agree, he knows a heck of a lot about doing podcasts. Just a reminder, guys, go to wdfpodcast.com, and you can see there all the different ways to support the podcast. Everything from being fit, spreading the word, simply listening to an episode, or Buying a t-shirt, ordering the book, that kind of thing. You can also become a patron and support When Diplomacy Fails well into the future and get some goodies in return for your wonderful, much-appreciated service. So yeah, thanks very much, guys, for stopping by. And I hope you enjoy our first collaboration episode of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Let's get to it. I will now take you to, well, a conversation between myself and Travis J. Dow. Thanks and enjoy. So, on the podcast for the very first collaboration episode, the very first official collaboration episode, today we have Travis J. Dow from, well, <laughs> a great number of podcasts. How's it going there, Travis? Good, good. And, and thanks for having me on. Any excuse to talk Bismarck and, and Franco-Prussian War. Good stuff. Absolutely. I feel the exact same way. Take us through just a number of the podcasts. Actually, just give give us a full list of the podcasts you do, including translation work and otherwise, just so people get a feel for who Travis is. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So I should probably mention that there, because I'm not going to list all the individual sites or anything, but they're they're all on podcastnik.com, like podcast N-I-K, like, like Sputnik kind of. It's actually like check for podcaster, but still, or it could be, I guess. Let's see. History of Germany, which I do in two languages. So that's, that's two. I do, you know, it's 100% in English and 100% in German. People ask me like, how much is in German and how much is in English? I'm like, yes, both. <laughs> Wow. Um, it's two separate, <laughs> two separate feeds. And then History of Alchemy and Bohemican are the first two I started so that people might know me from there because I've been doing those for like, we just rounded four years, I think, of History of Alchemy and Bohemican. Bohemican nice. is about the Czech Republic. Prague, the Czech Republic is where like alchemy and, and our love for Prague itself kind of intersects. Like I was a ghost tour guide and I just noticed there's a lot of tales of alchemists on the, on the tours and I'm like, what's even an alchemist you know yeah um so that started my podcasting world and then for history of germany because i do it in german i i did notice at the beginning that my german was was getting was pretty rusty so just as a as practice and because i love the show in german i translated das geheime kabinett into english as the secret cabinet and that is like the weird 
uh, tales from <laughs> from history, like the ones that your history teacher wouldn't tell you about. Like the last episode was the, <laughs> a short history of pornographic film. I see. Um, and yeah, so just like all kinds of. The first episode was like Napoleon's penis. Right. It's not. It, it's not explicit language per se, but it's definitely if you know uh, Hitler's missing testicle and whether he even. Yeah, oh. I mean, that's, you know that that kind of thing, and it's just. Yeah. Yeah, it has a lot of euphemisms in German, so I try to match. It's it is really good <laughs> practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that that's just a lot of that's a show I have a lot of fun on uh, the Secret Cabinet, and then I do for a year now. I've been doing a show that I only do in German called Americana für euch. Uh, it's about the U.S. in, but I do it only do it in German. So uh, that's that. And I, I do a show that now and then when I get around to and I like there's a topic burning on my mind that I want to do, I and it's more of a collaborative thing or will be a collaborative thing in future. But I just launched Africa, a history like less than a year ago. I Only saw like, that. Yeah. Six, yeah. That's like what I had in mind with that was like, OK, here's a feed. Here's a platform. But it's not going to be just me. Like I want interviews. I want other podcasters, other you know, that that's going to be a group effort. But that's yeah, that's been a lot of that's been really interesting, too, and a lot of fun. That's probably about I feel like I'm forgetting something, but that's yeah. That's, <laughs> it's like remembering the so, names of all your children or something. That's right. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> podcast to Steve and Bob. And yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, cool. Well, basically, we're... when I burn out, I some people kind of take a break and, start, and you know, might just take a break of, of podcasting, go on a sabbatical. I start another show. I just, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm tired of reading about alchemy for now. I'm going to read about Germany. But then later I'm like, oh boy, I'd love to just sit down and read a book on alchemy. So it, yeah. just, it, it all works out. Yep. It's, <laughs> we're absolutely delighted to have you on and very excited to talk about the Franco-Prussian War because, I mean, it's been five years since I did the original episode. So I did accompany that with a talk episode with Sean, of course, and Anyone who listens to it will probably be able to tell, at least in some way, that it's it's been five years. It was a, it was a good while ago. But have you touched on the Franco-Prussian War much yourself in in your own work? I have. I'm I'm way back. I'm a, I'm in like the 12th or 13th century right now. So and at a snail pace. So it'll probably be a couple years before I get there on the history of Germany. I've never gotten the chance to talk Bismarck yet. Then then maybe in passing. Oh, we did uh, on Bohemian. No, but that's not even Franco-Prussian on the the Deutsch Deutscher Krieg, the German German War, or or I think we call it the Prussian Austrian War. Yeah, um, yeah, that was all fought in the Czech Republic. So when I lived there, then Pete and Pete Coleman, he's my co-host on a, on a couple shows. We and and this was <laughs> that's actually an adventure. Um, he might launch a show on because he's he's in a wheelchair. He's paraplegic, oh, and right. what it's like to live overseas. Like he's from DC and Atlanta, and he's just a trooper in on Czech, like Prager, you know, cobblestone roads. Nothing's really accessible in, in the way <laughs> kind of happened by law in the States. Um, so he's a trooper. And so he's going to do a show on, well, here's your travel guide. If, if even if you're just on crutches or what you can expect, who you have to call, that kind of thing. And probably this will make it on there. Like we went to a we went to a reenactment out in the field somewhere. I mean, you know, Kronikratz, Kronitz, Kralove in Czech, but it's often the Battle of Kernikratz. Also like, known as the Battle of Sadova as well. 
Yes, exactly. And and yeah, we went out to there and and Czech reenactments, by the way, are amazing. They <laughs> this whole EU coalition, like they all know each other, wow. but whether it's World War Two, so we were in Pilsen at the seventieth, not to go too far off track, but oh yeah, actually, yeah, that's on YouTube and we interviewed Helen Patton and I was wearing my grandfather's uniform, but the liberation of Pilsen in World War Two, the reenactors were just amazing like all wow. these american u.s troops that had uh, they bought all their jeeps or tanks or whatever in belgium and you know got them running again and they were driving them from who knows where to pilsen and and it was just yeah fantastic and and the same goes for any era like the austro or, or uh, franco-prussian or uh, 19th century wars they're just ready to go they got cool. their russian troops and austrian troops and you know the you can oh even like the Hussite Wars so you can yeah. tell like the different noble families they'll have the Schwarzenberg flag or the I mean it's just amazing so they're they're like they got this like reenactments in the Czech Republic yes go 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 do it and there's enough battles that were fought in Prague you can just go there by tram like <laughs> Ahura, the, the the thirty what started the or you know towards the very beginning of the Thirty Years War and all that sure. stuff but yeah anyway yeah not to get too far off track like yeah oh, that's cool. that's probably on Bohemian we've mentioned. That so not even Franco-Prussian, I don't think. Wow. Uh, we mentioned that aspect of like, oh yeah, we saw the Prussian troops fight the Austrian troops, and and uh, I I went up to both of them and talked to them, and oh, they were both Czech, but that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, oh, yeah, cool. that's that's cool. as close as I've gotten so far. Can't wait, by the way. Like when I do finally get there uh, in the history of Germany, like it'll be yeah, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, you said you're in the 12th century or so. The unwrapping of the Holy Roman Empire in your History of Germany uh, podcast must be a good bit of fun because I found it a great, a great, uh, yeah. <laughs> a great occupation of the podcast is to unwrap exactly what the Holy Roman Empire was. All the drama. I'm like, pick a generation. Yes. There's always yeah. drama between emperor and pope. Pick yeah. it. So, I, yeah, I had Steve Guerra on the show. Like, he's also an, an Agora affiliate. Um, he's, he's an Agora network member and, and, um, I had him on the show as like, what is the investiture controversy and, you know, to break, like, what's the, you know, what was, tell me about the great schism and, and all that. Cause it's like, yeah, there's, there's emperors putting popes in the Vatican, in Vatican city. And then those popes are like anointing, you know, crowning the emperor and like, it's, but of then course, they hate yeah. each other and yeah. yeah. So all the, all the intrigue and yeah, it's, it's a, Every bit of every era of history has its own is interesting for its own reasons. But, yeah, like defining the Holy Roman Empire is neat because it's like, OK, wait, if we take it from the beginning. OK, this this little event that happened right here, this won't be important for 200 years. But in 200 <laughs> years, they're going to look back at this as precedence for this big battle or whatever. So keep or, you know, civil war. So keep this in mind. Sure. OK, yeah, let's, yeah. let's keep moving. You know, like all that stuff's happening, which is. Yeah, it becomes important until the early 19th century, like until the, you know, until the mm. fall of the Holy Roman Empire. So the thing that always interests me is how Prussia actually like rose out of the Holy Roman Empire. Like you had all the different states as well. And actually, I got into the I got the time five years ago. I didn't really understand properly where Prussia came from. And and I still still it's it's yeah. an amazing story to wrap one's head around. But it was kind of self-evident in the in the in the Franco-Prussian War talk episode, at least because I studiously avoided it in the in the solo episode. But the the fact that it it managed to to just bring itself out of like and distinguish itself as basically the like the second most important state 
in Germany, really yeah. apart from Austria. It's an incredible story. Where, where I am in history, or a, at least a couple episodes previously, this was not even German, Germanic. This was Slavic territory. This was, mm. um, you know, then the, the, the Saxon marches, like border territory, like here there be dragons kind of thing. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't want to over, you know, over, like over exaggerate that. Of course, there was trade and this and that, but there's also like 30 years of war, like the Teutonic orders and the, you know, after the crusades and all this. And, and then like Prussia comes out of like, so who are even the Prussians? Like they're not yeah. even a Germanic people. You know, we got the Franks and the Saxons and where are the Prussians? Oh, Prussians yeah, don't exist yet. What? So this is the way I understand it. So the Teutonic order basically founds it. Then they set up kind of Prussia as this kind of Protestant stronghold, essentially. And then they, they do well for a while. Then they lose to the Poles and the Poles occupy it. And they essentially like partition Prussia between East and West, Royal and Ducal Prussia. And then yeah. the then the Elector of Brandenburg comes to have Ducal Prussia at some stage, but un, still under fealty to the Polish king. So he has to basically be a vassal of the Polish mm-hmm. king for the sake of uh, Ducal Prussia. But then what happens is, which is funny because most people don't know, and it's a really important moment in history, but during the... During the Swedish deluge, essentially when Poland is getting like massacred, yeah. Polish king in order to in order to get the the great elector Frederick William on on side, he basically gives Frederick William complete like complete authority over Prussia. Like he doesn't have to swear fealty to the Polish king anymore. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's sixteen fifty seven or fifty eight, and that's a really important because from that moment on, then. That is because of that moment that Frederick William's grandson is able to become king in Prussia. Because even though he's an elector yeah. of Brandenburg, his author his authorization over Ducal Prussia is so kind of vague and unusual that he's able yeah. to basically proclaim himself king. And then again, he's only able to do that in 1701 because the Holy Roman Emperor wants help against the French because of the war the Spanish succession is about to happen. So mm-hmm. that that kind of circumstances ha- helped the leader of Prussia or Brandenburg, if you like, become important. And that's almost like a, a common theme of Prussian history. The the Chancellor, and in, in our case, in, in our war with Bismarck, using the circumstances to his advantage big time and like really, yeah. really bringing Prussia even further out of the out of obscurity and into like exploding onto the world stage. That that is really interesting. Like, but but really, it it comes down to like Bismarck at even even from before the the Franco-Prussian War. Well, okay, let me let me back up. I I go I I, I guess in this regard, I'd go backwards. Sure. Um, and let me let me explain that um, I grew up in Munich. That's that's probably a good place to start, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Bavaria, because I, I did wonder, like Bavaria. Okay, there was a Bavarian king. All right. There, so why, you know, how did they become part of essentially Prussia after you know after the the Franco-Prussian War? And and how did Württemberg become part of like why did they ever agree to this and this and that? But but that's already like in Munich. My first foray into history was what is the Holocaust and what are Nazis and why, why was Munich Hitler's favorite city? And what does that mean? Sure. And then, and then you kind of go backwards to, Oh, okay. Well, a piece of the puzzle of why world war two happened is because of the way world war one ended. And this is like the reason that Germans are, are so enthralled with the hall of mirrors in Versailles. Like that's just, (laughs) <laughs> that goes back. Okay, so World War One. Why did why were Germans so gung ho to go to war? Well, because of the Franco-Prussian War, 
because that was a crazy victory and was just, you know, went perfect perfectly for them. And they had a string of victories in the 19th century because of Bismarck and like because of the Prussians and because of Bismarck's policy. So then it comes down to like, well, who is Bismarck? Because after the, I mean, when Napoleon cleans up the Holy Roman Empire, it's like a hundred, what is it? Like somewhere around 1100 almost autonomous, almost independent, like principalities, bishoprics, counties, yeah. uh, dukedoms. And <laughs> and they might have tariffs. They might have uh, like a, a coinage, like like a common currency, but probably mm. not. They, you know, everybody that can print their own money prints their own money. And, and yeah, it's, it's just disgusting. It's just, <laughs> yeah. For as far as like if you're a businessman or if you're a merchant or anything, it's just horrible. It's a nightmare of like trying to import and export or do, you know, do any kind of trade. And that's still, I mean, so, you know, fast forward like 50 years, but you still have the, the German question, I guess, is the, like the, the big, I don't know, I don't know what, even what it is in English, but the Kleindeutsche or Großdeutsche, like the big Germany or small Germany solution to the German question. And that is, is Austria and Prussia going to be one country or is Austria and Prussia, or is it going to be Germany without Austria or what? Mm. And that plays into later uh world war one we're like world war two megalomania two um and that whole thing like like you know germany and austria are definitely the the two germans the two germanies and you know how does that like who's gonna who's gonna do i mean i don't even i can't even go deep in the weeds on this like i you know my understanding <laughs> that deep but uh, the parliament in frankfurt you had this the prussian part that was like this german not the north German Bund, you know, but this other like this German because Austria was represented there and it, like this like, OK, well, we need some sort of government thing so we can bring it to this this pan-Germanic forum, which had no teeth. It kind of <laughs> like the EU of, yeah. you know, like they didn't have any power to enforce anything because there was a separate parliament in Vienna and a separate one in, in Prussia. And, and, you know, they all sent people to Frankfurt. But what the heck is Frankfurt? You know, yeah, so yeah. like it was just so weird. And Bismarck navigated all this and mm. and it all does kind of come back to bismarck that like i don't know was he a great chess player i you you definitely i remember you mentioned it on your show the the emser depeche or dispatch i guess the telegram that that is received but bismarck gets his hand on it so, so there's a story this story was de debunked by a historian i don't so you know i don't, don't want to feed your listeners fake news but it's a story i still love where According to the story, uh, Bismarck was at a dinner party, basically, when he got the telegraph. And the telegraph is this very it's it's still like it, there's certain demands in it. And it's and it's, you know, if you do this, we'll you know that we would see that as an act of aggression and blah, blah, blah. Sure. But you'll often hear that the Emser dispatch is or that, you know, the telegram was a couple of words were omitted maybe before yes. he let he let it be published. That's not true. It was like really? two thirds were cut out. Two thirds really? were cut out. <laughs> It was like, and so according to the story, Bismarck's sitting around the dinner table with his buddies and he's like, and they're just in a bad mood, political something, just a bad mood happening. And they're sitting around the dinner table going, you know, and Bismarck's like, well, what if we cross this? <laughs> now it sounds like this. And they read it. And then, and finally he didn't, you know, he, cr he kept crossing stuff out until they were all just like laughing around the table. Like, oh, that's awesome. Print that, print that. <laughs> and okay. So this story was debunked, but still, I love it. And, yeah. and, uh. Because it's like you could you could see that happening in a way um, that they're like, OK, that's perfect. You know, let's, 
let's see what the French think of that. And, you know, sure enough, that like the French declared war, you know, like that's exactly that was exactly the intent and checkmate. And, you know, that's exactly what they wanted. There's another story that I think foreshadows the Franco-Prussian War. Oh, okay. Which I don't know if you mentioned this. So did you talk about he was in a duel? No, I didn't know about the duel. I I heard about it, but I didn't include it because I didn't find anything on it. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not surprised I, i'm not saying you should have mentioned it because there's <laughs> very famous historians that when they wrote their books on bismarck they didn't even bring it up like so some people think that this is not important at all and but but at the time it was reported in the media across like in bavaria prussia all the different places and i think this story foreshadows the way that he made France declare war on prussia i think it kind of it shows a little bit about bismarck's personality and Okay. Like, who was Bismarck? Like, that's a hard question to even answer because, yeah. he, okay, oh, sure. No, he's a he's a Junker. He's a um, rural nobility. And yet he created the first social welfare, welfare state in Germany. And it's a, know, it's a very yeah. famous one, you know. Um, oh, so he was a defender of the of the Protestants, <laughs> except for when he worked with the Catholics, you know, to, yeah, yeah. against the socialists. And like, you know, yeah. He, yeah, he's just a super good chess player but duels i gotta admit like duels and and i kind of first started reading about austrian uh, like austrian duels like austria-hungarian era duels mm, mm. this was definitely a prussian thing too so you know the oh, prussian time their, yeah and their honor and blah, blah, blah. The, like there's a crazy number so in yeah 1882 to 1912 there was 2000 over 2000 recorded duels like that's the police Whoa. record so times that by three to get a real number of how many duels happened that weren't reported, you know. Um, and you notice just like, oh, wow, no, this was a thing, <laughs> especially yeah. for nobility, which Bismarck was. And, it, you know, Bismarck kept getting higher and higher ranking nobility, but he started <laughs> off the rural, you know, Junker, yeah. like a nobleman. But OK, so back in 1852, and there's a lot of funny stories about this this duel, like how it happened, why it happened. And, and basically... Um, he had another a conservative politician rival named Georg von Vinke. Von Vinke was another, like, he was a Junker. He had the same rural background. He had, the, you know, the no, uh, rural nobility background. He was the same person as Bismarck. And maybe, yeah, he was just, they hated each other, probably because they <laughs> reflected each other. There's this funny incident that was reported in the newspapers that this all comes back to a down to a cigar and like and Bismarck smoking like there was um, it's <laughs> bizarre. Like the first the newspapers said that only the Viennese like the royal like the representatives of the royal court uh, would smoke cigars. No one else would light up in the in the parliament or, or you know, in, in the, the common rooms. But Bismarck looked over at the Austrians and said, well, if they're smoking a cigar and he lit up a cigar and this <laughs> that's. That's typical Bismarck. I can buy that. What the newspapers now uh, like reported to various degrees was now you have like you even have like liberal non-smokers lighting up cigars in like a protest against the Austrians in this case. Or, you know, like just like it's, a, it's suddenly become a statement of like who's smoking and who's not. And, and it's like just weird thing. But that's not actually what the duel was about because, yeah, Vinke got mad about like who is this guy lighting up in the. So Bismarck said some things that were definitely agitating and definitely insulting. And now the newspapers disagree who even challenged the other person. But one one person has von Vinke like defending himself, like he had no choice. He was backed into a corner. His honor demanded, you know, his honor demanded like he challenged Bismarck to a duel, of course. Sure, yeah. And that was like and, and 
every many many people like Bismarck in his correspondence was like, "Can I get out of this? Is this like <laughs> I gone too far?" We see like similar stories with Abraham Lincoln. Like, oh shoot! Like now it's act- we're actually going to shoot at each other. And Bismarck's like asking his friend, and they're like, "No, no, no!" Like at this point, like, and they're like, "Hey!" And best case scenario, we get rid of a of a of, a, of an opposition politician in Parliament, which is like, whoa, huh. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's one way to solve your politics. So Bismarck later writes that he understood that von Wenke had to challenge him. And I'm and when I read that, I'm like, wow, that is did he learn a lesson there to where if he knew that if he edits the Emser telegram that France would like Napoleon the third would have no choice but to declare war, which like von Wenke was France in this case. Exactly. Like he just had to. And Bismarck was ready. Like they're both they were both fencers, of course, because they're like Prussian nobility. And but then they they went to pistols and, you know, they both missed. There's the rumor that they were both handed like unloaded pistols. Bismarck later writes that he found it disappointing that suddenly the like the whole excitement had gone down. Like he basically he's like, as I looked through the smoke and saw von Vinca still standing, I was disappointed that the (laughs) fight was over. I'm like, oh, my God, like he wanted to kill. And the people that was like, well, there wasn't even a doctor present. The whole thing was just a show of Mm -hmm. honor. The people that they're like, no, Bismarck was disturbed, like before and right after. And he, you're like, no, no, he, he, he definitely thought it was a real duel. So it, yeah, sure. it really, you're like, oh, wow, that's kind of like he played, Fra- he played von Vinke to the same way he later, like 20 years later almost would play France. Yeah. I love, so I love that story for that, you know. Oh, big time. It's, it's very, it's really indicative of his character though, isn't it? Like, Yes, like you said like twenty years beforehand. It's like he's already doing things that he would later do, but on a much wider scale. Except instead of uh, von Ringe, it was Napoleon the Third. Like it's it's mad, but obviously he he understood even then how to work people. Oh yeah, and so here's a weird thing: uh, when he started the war with Austria and won that one, there were there was a, a big part that said, "No, you need to keep on going." You need to you need to march all the way to Vienna. You need to make them pay, make them, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Bismarck backed down and was like, nope, we're, we're going to have no secession. I mean, Austria had secession. They had to give up their claim on Schleswig-Holstein. They had to give up uh, Venice and, you know, this and that. But they didn't give up anything to Prussia. And Bismarck was like, that's what we wanted. That's enough. And and we because of this, we definitely have all the say in the German politics now and mm. blah, blah, blah. Mm. That's, this is enough. Later, if you would have listened to his own advice, like, like something changed when they went to war with France. Like they were right. I mean, they were in Versailles. They were right outside Fran- Paris shooting at Paris. And it was like. I wonder if they just would have backed off and then they demanded Alsace for a Lorraine. And it's like, well, I wonder if they just would have, if they would have treated France, they would have, they would have treated the way they treated Austria. I know. Yeah. This whole because load of what ifs wrapped up with that. That, that. Yeah. That's where my, my interest goes like, well, then we got, then World War One, then World War Two, then, you know, cause it's like, you know, Alsace for a Lorraine was this big, this big deal. And then Versailles, like the second Reich, the Second Empire, was founded in in the it wasn't the Hall of Mirrors, right? But in any case, in Versailles, like what is this Germans' fa- fascination of founding their empires in Paris? Like, yeah, <laughs> don't you guys got a half dozen German capitals you could go to? Like, it's just it's yeah, weird. It was symbolic with Versailles, I think, because yeah. of Louis the Fourteenth as well. And looking at him now, because Louis the Fourteenth is kind of we just finished. At the time, this 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 whole big special comes out. This whole big remastered <laughs> project. Our episode on the Franco-Dutch War will be finished, but 
Louis the Fourteenth's threat to Germany, like the German states, they could either ally yeah. with him or against him. But he was a big threat to their sovereignty individually. So maybe it was a kind of a a, a middle finger to what Louis the Fourteenth had done in the past, perhaps. Clearly, but it was but it was like, don't you have your own? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, well, the thing is, I, I always thought it was interesting that like I've been to I mean, yeah, I've been to Versailles as a tourist and looked at that whole thing. But I've also been to four perfect copies of Versailles, not with the extra wings that Louis built and all this and that. But yeah, but the basic the middle structure, there's one. Well, shoot. Uh, but Karlsruhe, uh, you know, in, in Baden-Württemberg. Louis the second of Bavaria built one Nymphenburg, which is on an island. It's like I built it, and they're just replicas of Versailles. But they're like, but my Versailles on an island in this <laughs> lake, you know. And and I'm just like, what is there a fascination? Like, leave it alone, you know. Build yeah. your own. So now it's like there's the Hall of Mirrors. That's where that took place. Which means, you know, now there's that famous picture of you know of of like Hitler and them standing at Versailles, and it's like, yeah, that's not. I mean, the the propaganda from from later generations, it, it all comes back to this these of these events, like these chain of events. Mm. So, yeah, yeah it's, that's it's, that's why it's so important. Like, that's why the Franco-Prussian War was so crucial to understanding what happened in the 20th century. Like, yeah. And that's yeah. why I think most histories of the of basically the 20th century, if they want to explain the first and second World wars, they nearly always start from 1870 or 1871, rather. Yeah. And like you really can't in a way you have to go back before then. And well, yeah, my my example is like if you want to know alternative history where none of those things happened, that's where Bismarck treated Paris the way he treated Vienna. Yeah, just five years prior, five you know five years later, he's you know instead of saying no, we we're not going to march to Vienna, we're gonna we're gonna deal with them now on the on the uh, on on equal ish terms. Like later, he's like, nope, let's march to Paris, let's shoot at Paris while we're occupying Versailles, and and oh, and we're gonna demand Alsace for Lorraine, and it's just like, ooh, that's where's the logic? Like you know, five years earlier, you said the opposite thing, but I know. but also flip flopping, like being opportunistic is bad as also. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At the core of Bismarck, too. That's yeah. So again, okay, that's typical Bismarck. Then it had yeah. That's the only way it could have happened. Um, but uh, I think yeah. I think it's interesting what what you said about the jewel as well, and just the the sense of honor in the Prussian kind of the Prussian nobility mm. and the Unker class. They were essentially like the warrior class, but they weren't like they weren't warriors anymore. Kind of thing. I just think that's interesting because of my yeah. dissertation that looked at the code of honor. And but it was in the oh, case of Britain. Yeah. It was in the case of Britain, but mm. it looked very much at national honor and 
everyone at the time of the First World War, which is interesting because it was traced up to 1912 in your example there of all the Prussian jewels. But up, yeah. to the, up to the First World War, pretty much everyone who got involved, national honor was used in some way. In Britain's case, it was Britain's was probably the most uh, blatant. And that's why I found it the most interesting it was also all their sources were in English, so it was easier to research. Yeah. But the the fact I, that like... In, I in can see the parallels cases, there. Yeah, oh, yeah like Prussian... Because Austria and Prussian especially, like nobility meant something. And if you actually read about – because I was like, well, what did von Vinke – or what did Bismarck actually say that yeah. von Vinke found himself so in a corner that he's like, well, we're going to duel it out? Mm-hmm. And and basically, I mean he insulted him left and right for a decade about his uh, – the way he talks in parliament, the way – you know his stance and that he has no stance and just like all this polit- this political trash talk. Sure. But what it actually came down to, the reason he – you know, figuratively pulled off the glove was, or the gauntlet was that that he questioned his rank. He questioned his behavior as a yunker, like as a nobleman. Right. He said, "This is not the way a nobleman behaves." I question whether he even should be considered as such. Oh. That and I, and I bet that is a, that would that would drop the ball in in yeah, in England, the UK, like in in, the, in those noble circles too. Sure, if you're, yeah. It's like, oh, you you question my position, my stat, mm. my my cultural status. That goes too far. Like, yeah. that's hard for us to relate to because I'm like, you can call me white, white trash all day. Like, that's fine. You know, go, <laughs> like I don't go for it, dude. But but yeah, they're like, what? I, you know, like you you say I don't I shouldn't have my inheritance. Like I'm not worthy of it. No, them spiting mm. words. Like, yeah, that's it. Big time, so, because actually dueling was outlawed in Britain by 1852, oh, I think it was. Prussia too. Pr- yeah, yeah, Prussia was the whole time. Like, well, I don't it, even... Yeah. It's funny, it was legal, but it still happened. Like, in the UK, yeah. they never really did it, and duels came to be kind of looked down upon from about the 1850s in Britain. There was still the national honour thing, but... Yeah, and kind of transferred from the person to the nation, if you like, whereas... I, I, yeah, I can tell you that Austria was did not give up that practice easy. Prussia, I guess the same, but Austria is definitely known for, um, you know, in World War One, when you all see them wearing that cavalry, ha- the cavalry hats, like of course. the cavalry equals the, you know, they're, they're samurai. They're, you know, that's their <laughs> warrior class. They, they would yeah. never you see them getting into Mercedes instead of horses, but still they got that hat on. That's the, that goes along with that. That's where dueling, you know, they're, they're, they go hand in hand. Of like course. they have that status. If you insult that status or, you know, then that's, yeah, it's out. Mm. Sabres out, guns drawn. Uh, here <laughs> we go. Yeah. So. Like, I don't want to make this a podcast about national honor, but I just found it so interesting. It was like the more I looked into it, the more examples I found. And even like in the 19th century as well, like it dates pretty far back, obviously before that. But even in the stuff I was looking at in the 1600s, it was seen as like, with the likes of, uh, the likes of Charles II of, of Britain in the 1660s, mm-hmm. like he kind of saw it. National honor was used, but also the honor of a person. It was just very, like, the, uh, there's a there's a big, like, big history there, which is obvious because that's why I, I find it so interesting. But I think the way it carries on, and it's kind of like a background thing that historians haven't looked at as much as I think they should have to kind of get a real grasp of the way people really thought back then. Because that's why the First World War, or even the Franco-Prussian War, the fact that Bismarck yeah. used the war as a tool of diplomacy, but in the First World War, it was kind of like no one really wanted it, but they felt like it had to happen because they felt pushed into that kind of situation. And I think I, national yes. national honor is a big part of that, and it's not appreciated enough. You know, peeling back the onion layers of Bismarck, I think one thing you see is 
what makes Bismarck a good chess player, and I, I might step out on the thin ice here. This is kind of my opinion, but no, I think what, what, make, what makes Bismarck so interesting is that he understood complex things like the Prussian nobility honor system or yeah. even the international honor system. Mm. And that was just one more uh, tool in his repertoire of how to get <laughs> things done. Yeah. That, and, and if you think about it, like that is – that's crazy uh, because, is. you know, so he's just like, OK, so I'm going to insult this person to the point where he needs to, you know, he's going to want to he's going to want to duel or I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to take the like mince the Kaiser's word so much that it it makes France like Napoleon has no choice but to defend his honor. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's the kind of thing where, yeah, if, if I mean, he can you can be goaded into war like that, like that's. That's yeah. But to Bismarck, he's just an, he's just a person that understood that at all times. He was a politician for so long at that mm, point, but mm. was the underdog for so long. He just understood how things work that. Yeah. By the Franco-Prussian War, he had another 20 years of like unifying Germany and doing great things. I think as well, the fact that I mean, I love I've always if I if I could go back and do it again. And I think even in the future, this great podcast ground, even for for the period of the period, like the time that Bismarck was chancellor. From mm-hmm. 64 to 1890, pretty much, he was at the helm of first Prussia and then Germany. And I think there's so much there. Everything from the scramble of scramble for Africa to the Bulgarian crisis in the, in the Balkans to the Russo-Turkish War. Like, so much stuff happens. And I think Bismarck's role in the center of it, I think that's why. Because when people started yeah. listening to the podcast, they <laughs> discovered pretty early that I was... I think obsessed is a strong term, but I like to say I'm a big fan of his. But the I think he just epitomizes this podcast so well because not only did he know how to make diplomacy fail to his benefit, but he also yeah. knew he also knew his opponents well enough to know when he could push the issue and still get what he wanted. And I think that was the matter that that's that's the mark of a true kind of master, really. Mm-hmm. In Munich again, there's the residence. The Bavarian king lived, but the, you know he would he would have guests and whatever when the Prussians came by or Austrians came by. But there was these murals of these because Bavarians were the traditional allies of the French. Sure. Even if it was against the Austrians or against a different German, um, well, actually, especially against the Austrians, maybe like that's the. <laughs> um, but but you know, and the Franco-Prussian War is. Like the French felt betrayed because the Bavarians fought with the Prussians and and all of this, and in retrospect, that's that may be overlooked a lot because people are like, well, obviously the Bavarians fought with the Prussians against France because, well, they, you know, we can't imagine it any other way because it was just a German state when World War One was fought and it was of course. a German state when World War Two was fought, but. But before 1871, Bavaria was was at odds with, you know, they were they had their hat in the mix. They tried to uh, have more influence and and be autonomous and this and that. And they were one of the bigger states like Austria, Hungary is its own can of worms. But within I mean, they were bigger than Prussia. They were bigger than Württemberg. And just so, yep, Prussia still. Yeah, it's almost an afterthought. Like, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to annex Bavaria and Württemberg. (laughs) What yeah. you know? Who's gonna stop us? Yeah, you know? yeah. So, I know it's it's mad. Yeah. The, the role Bavaria plays actually is an interesting part as well because in my <laughs> in my background studying with Louis the Fourteenth, just as he was there for so long, he almost establishes the French relationship with Bavaria right up uh-huh. to the point of the war of the, Sp- the Spanish Succession in seventeen o two when it actually breaks out. The the Allies against France. They've all these plans. A kind of disgruntled Bavarian elector, if you like. 
uh, when he doesn't get what he wants uh, in Italy, yeah. uh, he sides with Louis the Fourteenth, and this throws all mm-hmm. the Allied plans out of whack. And it's only mm-hmm. with the, yeah. it's only with the Battle of Blenheim then the famous the famous Allied victory that Bavaria is kind of cowed then, and it has to kind of be yeah. like, all right. I'm sorry, kind of thing. But yeah. it, it's very it's very interesting how how Bavaria did pop up. But like in the Thirty Years' War. Bavaria was a very strong Maximilian of Bavaria. The story of him during the Thirty Years' War, because he was one of the few electors that stayed in place during the entirety of the conflict, mm-hmm. and he was utterly loyal to the emperor. And if not for yep. Bavaria, the the Habsburg cause would have failed much earlier than it did. So I, I yeah. found it interesting yeah. the flip flop. Louis the Fourteenth plays a very important role in changing mm-hmm. Bavaria around, basically offering the Bavarians. Uh, giving the Bavarians an offer they couldn't refuse, pretty much. Yeah, and actually, yeah, the Thirty Years' War is because Bavaria is staunchly Catholic. Bismarck especially was being anti-Catholic for the Lutheran cause, kind of, in, in Prussia. <laughs> and then, you know, I just saw, and the Catholics even formed their own party. Like, that, that's something I, I can't wait to get to, actually, is the the development of the Centrum Party and then kind of their roots of what's happening today in Germany, which is just that, again, like... Centrum is the opposition to Bismarck. That is why they, that's the Catholic, that's why they existed. Like if Bismarck wasn't there, there would be no Catholic party to oppose him. It's just like, you know, but then of course he cooperates with Centrum against the socialists. And so, yeah, of course, you know, he cooperates with Catholic Bavaria against the, (laughs) I just, it it all comes together. It's all kind of neat how that works out. Bismarck's penchant for strategically teaming up with his with his allies and you could say that not like in the case of the franco-prussian war i always found it interesting the fact that he was able to not offend austria in because it was only four years after the austro-prussian mm-hmm. war that he makes war on france and i always found it interesting that he was able to do that and not worry about vienna coming up from the south to attack him but i mean aside from the fact that austria was per, like preoccupied with its hungarian problem by that point yeah and i think they didn't really have the stomach for another war especially against Prussia after their loss at Sadova, I think was a huge national kind of catastrophe mm-hmm. for, for Austria. So they'd probably didn't have the stomach for it, but even the diplomatic threat they could have posed and how Napoleon III didn't really make use of what Austria could have done potentially for, for like even just to pull the, to pull the Germans that they would later become in, in different directions. Do you think maybe there was just a reluctance to, from maybe from like your, your kind of experience growing up or whatever, do you think there was a, a reluctance on the Austrian part to attack the the Prussians on behalf of France, say? That's a good question, because I think Bismarck had this, this famous balancing game, but mm. this is this is too early to, like, the classic balance of power in Europe. Like, Bismarck does that later. So at this point, and at that point, like, Austria was an an ally if anything it was like look we got the you know we got these against france and the uk and that's like towards the end of his life sort of thing but but still that that's weird that that happened and i wonder if was was he so generous after the austria the the prussian austrian war is that, like is that why he was so generous because he knew he would in a very short period of time need need them to be neutral or friendly towards them against the french yeah um that now that's kind of like i don't know because i think that's like how much faith do you put into Bismarck as the chess player? Like, did he know, really see yeah. that far ahead? Because yeah. there's there's all kinds of evidence that I could throw at you that says, well, no, he was really just an opportunist. Yeah. And year to year was like there was no long term strategy or he would have done things differently. Yeah, it's interesting that he was so generous with Austria 
five years before. Yeah. And before the war with Austria, I mean, I guess the war settled it. Like, you just, you know, you. It's just so weird how the war settled it because b- b- before it was, it was fighting tooth and nail to what could Prussia do? What could like the cigar thing? Yeah. You know, like. Uh, you know, <laughs> the Austrian guy is going to light a cigar in Parliament, so I'm going to light a cigar in, in Parliament, and it's mm. it's just weird this this weird petty uh, nitpicking back and forth to yeah no we like Austria is not going to do anything while we attack France like that's very strange but you know they beat them soundly it was much short like it's also known as the Seven Weeks War I believe yeah yeah um, it it's just they beat them so much better than they thought they were going to even. And then they said, okay, like, that's not going to happen again. So maybe that was just enough. That Like, mm. they, yeah, they're not going to try this anytime soon. Like, we're good. <laughs> yeah, no, good question. Like, I, I, I can't say definitively, like, what Austria was thinking or, or what Prussia knew about Austria to make them not worry about them. But. Sure, because we could look ahead and say, like, in the, eight, in the, in the Prussia-Danish war, say, in 64, right, the, <laughs> the idea that Bismarck, I mean, Bismarck wasn't always German nationalist for a long time. He didn't want... Prussia to because he thought that in the unified Germany Prussia would have a reduced yep. say in kind of what went on and I'm not entirely sure at the exact point that he became converted to that cause probably at the point that he realized you could have it both ways you could have a unified yeah. Germany with Prussia at its head kind of yeah. thing I think yeah, that's that is what changed his mind yeah. when that happened is the question yes <laughs> yeah like, yeah but yeah. I, f- I find it interesting that because we say oh how far ahead could he have known but if you think about it with with the war with Austria, that was necessary to kind of clear up the, the German dualism argument, like, would it be mm-hmm. Vienna, would it be Berlin kind of thing. After that, after 1866, or even during that war, he must have known in order to complete the job, to make all of Germany unified, there would have to be an existential threat. And Bismarck, throughout his yeah. career as well, he'd always been against the idea of a war with Russia. And he would have known Napoleon III's character well enough and yeah. the sense that, like, the, the trouble his regime was in, even by the mid-60s with the failed war in, in Mexico that French the French forces tried to pursue under Napoleon III's name, like, this is a lot of maybes. But I just, in, in my head, it makes sense that Bismarck would see the most logical way, like, he'd used war as a tool so far. I mean, why not use it again against mm-hmm. France? And if you're not going to use it to, like, you're not going to use the Russian threat, which probably arguably might have been more traditional to use the threat of a Russian invasion and maybe more convincing to the other German states as well. But I suppose if he wanted the ones nearer the Rhine or like further down to the south uh, southwest, that mm-hmm. would have been under more direct threat, especially Bavaria. Maybe he thought that the French threat would be more uh, kind of handier to provoke to suit his circumstances. So this is basically a random yeah. way of me saying that I think he must have looked ahead to an extent because yes, he was definitely an opportunist, but if he hadn't expected France to declare war, then I think he would have been a lot harder than Austria than he was. And I think the fact that the fact that he was hard on France, I think, like arguably, some people say, oh, it was because of his generals. Oh, he wanted they wanted a buffer between, but like obviously, it was a terrible idea in retrospect. But I think had he not thought the job was done, he would have gone further against Austria and kind of vassalized it almost if he'd wanted to. And Bismarck, so I do know that he's like he's he was very outspoken about no like you know, I'm totally paraphrasing, but he was very like strict about like no, like the Austrians are our brothers. We need to like preserve their like let them preserve their honor in this war kind of thing. Sure. Um like he really did fight his generals. And that's why I think, yeah, a lot of people think that 
he might have given in to his generals when he then attacked Paris. But yeah, my big question is like, okay, well, how, you know, why did he want Alsace Lorraine really? Like in his mind, personally, privately, like, that he, I mean, he kept diaries and stuff. There must be somebody that has written a book on that. But like that area, okay, sure, it's economically good. It'd be a buffer. It would take away, you know, um, France's defensive capability to some degree. And it's, and, and Alsace Lorraine goes way back. Like I already started talking about it on the history of Germany. And that was like way back in the ninth century. <laughs> so <laughs> Alsace Lorraine goes way back to why Germans might consider it German and French certainly consider it French. So that, that's, there, there's just so many things like, was he really being opportunistic? Cause it doesn't like Bismarck himself. I don't think, um, would do something just because honor demands it. Like, I think he'd be smarter than that and, and somehow work around it and even, you know, twist words. And, and um, he was just a very clever, he was just a clever enough person to say, yeah, we don't want Alsace Lorraine for ideological reasons. Like we want, sure. you, know, you know, like, no, he would have a good um, reason. But what that was like, I just, I just don't know. Cause, mm. cause I think that's, that's the difference between, yeah, he wanted to go all the way to Paris to make sure that that, I mean, he just, he wanted a complete victory so that that couldn't be argued. And like, that's exactly the opposite of what he did with, with Austria. As well, how much, uh, how much do you know about the kind of the period that came after the Franco-Prussian War? Like, so say from like 1871 to about 1890, when Bismarck resigned kind of thing. Do you know all that much about kind of that period? The the thing that I, I like then is like the, the social history, like um, even like even to this day, there's like the the CDU and the SPD, the Social Democrat Party of Germany and the Christian Democrat. Yeah. And that uh, those go back to um, the centrum, like I already said, was the Catholics in opposition to Bismarck. They formed mm. their party and the SPD also was like, OK, well, we're uh, we want these socialist reform, like this welfare type of reform for workers and that also formed in Bismarck's time and that's just kind of interesting to note so like um like I've been to Hamburg and the very first some of the very oldest like socialist type housing and because everybody had their own apartment then uh, they started to do all these little side industry jobs like just making thread or making yarn or, you know, actually creating, you know, creating some sort of textile. And that created this little, this, this industrial, like this micro industrialization that is so unique to Germany, almost like Germany's weird in its own way, <laughs> as far as like how, you know, how they're in, like industrious and they have all these little family businesses that grow up into be who knows what, like MBB and Mercedes and all these, these big companies. Yeah. Um, but that started, so that, so w w if you look, you know, where, why is Germany this way? And, and you, you start going backwards to answer that question and you see these workers quarters in Hamburg that you're like, Oh, so was, did this start to happen because of the SPD? No, Bismarck did this <laughs> so that the S so that he just, took the, the wind out of the sails of the socialists. Mm. You know, he would just, he built the first welfare state, gave a social net, gave social guarantees in order that the commun communist was later, but the order that the socialist could not gain traction. That, that's kind of, I don't, I don't know a lot about his later life. I, he died early enough that he didn't have to see what happened as far as like World War I. Like, so Ludendorff, we went to Kralitz Kralovi, you know, 1866 battle. And who's the general in charge? Ludendorff. Ludendorff. 
Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm just like, what? Like same Ludendorff that saw Hitler rise to power or, at least, you know, okay. At least Hindenburg did, but the same Ludendorff that was in world war one, 50 years later, like that's insane. It like is. how like German vampires, I tell I you, like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it is a generation or two difference, but no, it's, they're so connected. Like one, one event, one war leads into the other you know, the next generation forgets how bad war is and they want it again. And it's just like, wow, that's yeah. 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 So and I think that a, for, a forgotten thing you, you touched on it there about the social aspects. But the fact that it's doubly impressive because while Bismarck was balancing things internationally for those two decades, he was balancing things domestically at home. Oh, yeah. And to a great extent, the latter was more stressful to him and more more of his resignation threats and complaints of of stomach problems before promptly downing a whole load of uh, a whole load of alcohol and smoking a load of cigars yeah a load of those complaints and threats to resign came from the problems he was having with with getting politicians on side and yeah see and especially in later life i always thought his threats to resign was also just a always always a ploy like yes. he knew that it would never be accepted. He yeah. knew that that like it would, it's throwing a hissy fit. Yeah, like if we is. don't, you know, it if we're is. not doing this, or if you don't pass this bill, I'm gonna resign. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh no, don't go that far. We need your advice for Tanzania or some yeah. Zingtao. You know, like what the? I, yeah, I, <laughs> definitely domestically. Like he just set his will through in so many different ways. Like he was just amazing. And he's a, he's a cult of personality before it existed. He was a mm. benevolent dictator before it. I mean, he had so much, he was, he had so much power in a way by the end of his life that you could really say he scratched together the state of, of Germany, the second, you know, the second German empire, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, that they lost in world war one, but he scratched it together just through his, pure will and okay opportunism yes but but really like tactics in parliament like his tactics with other politicians and his mm. his his strategy and everything there was definitely a force of will there that if if you take him out of the equation like that's the the, the great man of history kind of theory but in Big bismarck's time. case yeah, in bismarck's case it's like hard to say that that's not true like if oh, you just yeah. pull bismarck away you'd be like oh no because germany was you know, dozens of like semi-autonomous states. And the, I mean, Habsburgs had possessions way up in the Northwest somewhere, almost like almost to the Netherlands and, <laughs> and which were, were obviously Austrian at one point in history and, and, you know, all that stuff. And, and they're, and they're just saying like, yeah, no, like, okay, we fight a war with you. Now we take all this next time, another little war. And we take the Southern German states. And it's like, no, that was all the way he wanted the wars to, run the way he needed them declared not just the franco-prussian but also with the austrians and everything mm. you got to say like no if you pluck this one man out of the 19th century like all kinds of things are different oh big time um he's really a fascinating character to look at and it and i'm you know i'm not really a conservative i don't i don't like agree with him politically but it's like yeah no he, this guy is just fascinating like he had such an impact I think his, um, the best counterpart that I can find is uh, Metternich, who was head of Austria pretty much from the end of the Napoleonic War and like negotiating then in the Congress of Vienna. From then until the, the revolutions of 1848, Metternich was essentially at the head of, of Austria. And I think that was really the last gasp of Habsburg kind of power projection. It was part of yeah. the Holy Alliance with, with Prussia and Russia as well. But I think mm -hmm. like that... 
someone like Metternich and someone like Bismarck, they really do provide a, a pretty strong case for the great man in history uh, idea, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Metternich, yeah, yeah. The Austrians overall, like, I love the story of the Habsburgs, but clearly, I mean, it took them a, you know, 500 years to, to even become emperors, and there was no single, it's just, it's a whole different thing. Bismarck mm. is like, who is this random rural, and, and, and people have written book on just the young Bismarck and his childhood, and like, why, why wasn't he just a typical Junker? Because his, you know, his mom was metropolitan, his mom wanted to, him to actually, like, learn a trade, and and, you know, his dad was just like typical Prussian, you know, landholder, like, you know, so, like you see in his childhood, these being torn into different directions and being sent off for education and being sent off to Berlin and, and you know, this and that. Sure. And uh, yeah, definitely just an interesting character that it's hard to do justice, even if your podcast was another two hours. Yeah. But, but the, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to wrap this up now because it's it's been going for an hour. But before we do, is there any kind of closing thoughts you'd kind of like to to share just on on bismarck or maybe the importance of the franco-prussian war in in general yeah again again franco-prussian war this is my whole interest in it was because you got the franco-prussian war alsace lorraine it was so easy to defeat france when you see the outbreak of world war one and you see these streams of germans just marching like gleefully with flowers in their helmets <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know they think oh what was it called the it was like the springtime uh, enjoyment or i forget what they call it but like they're often the you know they're, they're we're off to war and it's like a celebratory thing and then they get mm. slaughtered by the thousands and tens of thousands that is, they all had in their mind, like, we're going to, we're off to Bismarck's Franco-Prussian War. Yeah. In fact, we got, what, what's his name? <laughs> Ludendorff, yeah. Ludendorff, yeah, and Hindenburg, and, you know, they're still around. They remember the good old days. You know, here we go. Yeah. And it was no such thing. No. And Hitler, like, mimicking, you know, going off to Versailles and, and you know, making them sign this this thing in 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 the, the Hall of Mirrors was like, it's revenge for World War One, but it's also mimicking Bismarck signing the, you know, founding the Second Reich. Now Hitler's founding the Third Reich, okay? Mm. But, and, um, but, you know, in the making Versailles a part of that, and it's just like the way that the Franco-Prussian War, World War One and World War Two, the, the fact that they're these distorted echoes in history that, oh, that's good. That's a Travis Dow trademark um, quote no but seriously like world war one and world war two from the german perspective it's like they just it's like well let's try to do it again oh we failed well let's try to do it again oh we failed you know and world war two was so much like well here's here's everything that we did wrong in world war one if we could if we changed it up we would be just like it would be just like the franco-prussian war again uh, oh except that it wasn't you know like yeah. those those two the greatest wars in in at least in european history is just like yeah, I mean, the Germans just, just looked to the Franco-Prussian War. They and did. were like, oh, let's go get Strasbourg back. Let's go, yeah. you know, that's our city. Let's go take it back. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, so it's hard to overstate the Franco-Prussian War, actually, in mm. summary. Like, it's it's one of those wars that really should be looked at. And, of course, you look at it for about two seconds and you go, oh, well, this is Bismarck's. <laughs> like, yeah. this is his, they just fell into his trap and his plan. And the whole world seemed to follow Bismarck's will in 1970 1870 so as a war to start one's podcast series with which I did like five years ago the Franco-Prussian yeah. war always interested me because of the person of Bismarck mainly but also because like you said the 
the incredible, like the hard to measure, really impact it had on on world history. Really, yes. Uh, the I think it was a good place to start, and I think if I was to do when diplomacy fails over again, I would start with the Franco-Prussian War as my first episode. Yeah, definitely, definitely gets my approval for a way to start a <laughs> podcast, and it's great to be uh, a part of the beginning of your extranza palooza, whatever you got going on here in the next couple months. Yeah, <laughs> um, I yeah, I wish you the best in that. I hope you pull that off. It's going to be pretty epic. I can't wait. So, thanks, thanks yeah, very awesome. much, Travis. And thanks, thanks for coming on. Before we, just before we get out of here, is there any plugs you'd like to do to re-remind people where to go to find you? You know what? Long, long story short, go to podcastnick.com. That's podcast N-I-K. There's more than a half dozen feeds there, um, but history of Germany is obviously the one that's most related to to this. Sure. Um, I did I did talk about East Germany now and then. I talk about I, I'm going to Germany in October to do a live show for my German-American show, but also the history of Germany, like it would be a crossover. So I don't even know what I'll talk about, like the Berlin airlift or the Marshall Plan or something that's, you know, we have in common. Not so much war, but that's not so nice. Diplomacy but, succeeding in those cases. Yeah, exactly. Diplomacy succeed. When diplomacy succeeds, <laughs> is, you know, when I'm, when I'm in front of an audience of Germans, let's go with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so so I, I think that'll be that'll be really great. So yeah, history of Germany. I think uh, you uh, your listeners might enjoy also. But cool, there's plenty cool. other. Bohemian was a passion. So uh, hmm. we lived in yeah, I lived in Prague for ten years, and I just love telling stories about Prague. So definitely good stuff. Right, cool. Well, thanks again for coming on, Travis, and thanks for being such a tolerant and knowledgeable guest. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's it's an honor. And uh, yeah, anytime. Like, I, Bismarck, we can talk Bismarck. Any, I mean, you can bring me on for other reasons, but anytime you want to talk Bismarck, sure. Just, <laughs> we can do that. All right, man. Sounds Cheers. good. Yep. All right. You made it at the other end. What did you think of it? Did you enjoy it? Do you think I spoke well? Do you think I rambled well? Of course I did. I think I noticed, and you guys will notice as well from the variation of guests I have on these things, Travis likes to talk. (laughs) Now, that's not in a bad way at all, but it's funny in comparison, some of the guests I have, I mean, the likes of Benjamin Ashwell, he's very kind of, he lets me speak and then he speaks or say, this is all kind of a bit of a spoiler, but if you listen to the end of this episode, you deserve a bit of spoilers. So on episode three, I'll have Mark Painter from the history of the 20th century. And he's very, he doesn't really say anything unless he's kind of spoken to. Stephen Guerra is kind of the same. Benjamin Jacobs is also sort of the same. It's hard to, I don't know, I'm not going to say it's hard to judge because I'm not going to judge anyone. But it's more, it's interesting. There we go. Just people's different conversational styles. Some people are dying to get words out, as much words as they can possibly produce. Other people kind of just sit there with a kind of expectant tone and just kind of wait until they have an audio bomb to drop on you. So yeah, it's nice to have different types of guests on because it changes things up and makes it interesting. So I hope you enjoyed Travis's considerable contribution today as the very first guest on the collaboration episodes. If you're scared off from them because of this, I'll basically just blame him. So it's kind of handy in that way. I'm sure he won't mind. Probably is all his fault anyway. These things generally are. But yeah, thanks very much again to Travis. Remember, you can find him, Podcast Nick, that's podcastnik.com. For everything else, wdfpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.